You're listening to audio from Christ Covenant Buckhead. If you're interested in learning more, visit ChristCovenantBuckhead.org. Our scripture reading for today comes from Proverbs. It's in the very beginning or the very middle of your Bible. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Of course, Solomon, the great king of Israel, wrote these words under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And so let's hear together the word of Christ. Solomon writes in Proverbs 1, 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The word of the Lord. Well, I bought my first house in the spring of 2007. And it was quite an experience. Anybody buy a house around that time, 2006, 2007? Um, I had, you know, really didn't have, hadn't had a job up to that point. I was the pastor of New Washington Christian Church um, in Indiana. They paid me $350 a week. I made an additional $50 a week as the chaplain of the Eastern Star Nursing Home. And uh, so, you know, $400 a week, that was my big income. But when it came to borrowing $180,000 to buy a house, all I really needed was a signature, right? 2007 was awesome. And so they said, hey, you know, here's the house. I remember talking to my uh, real estate agent and and he was like, hey, you know, I've bought a house and sold a house past, you know, every two years for the past little bit. And I've made all this money. He's like, that's what you need to do. It's easy. The the housing market, it's just incredible right now. And uh, so I bought this house. Well, then I was only, that's just in Huntsville. I was only there for a short time. I became the pastor of First Baptist Church in Covington, Georgia. And uh, I ended up selling the house in the fall of 2008. So needless to say, my first home-owning experience was not a pleasant one, right? It was a lot harder to sell that house than it was to buy that house. And of course, you know what happened in there, this, this housing uh, bubble, this, this false bubble of the housing market that was, was built on all these zero-down mortgages that you could just get with a signature had started to burst. And, you know, I was 26 years old and I lost all of my money. Now, here's something that's true if you're 26. 26 is a great time to lose all your money. It's way better than if you're 56 or 66, right? If you got to lose all your money in life, you want to do it when you're 26. Maybe when you're 16 is even better. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, all of this housing market, I mean, you guys lived through, it was, it was all built on a false reality, it was all built on speculation that it wasn't really true. And, and when the reckoning came, it came with a lot of pain and a lot of heartache for a lot of people. A few weeks ago, I, I talked about the herd mindset in investing. You know, how markets are built and markets collapse because people often run in herds, right? When everybody's buying, people are buying. When everybody's selling, people are selling. But it's the truly wise investor. When I said a few weeks ago, it's, it's, the, it's the wise investor that can see above the herd, right? It's the wise man. We have a little slide up here on the screen. But it's, it's the wise person. The wise man is able to see beyond the popular to the good. He's able to see beyond the acceptable to the true. He's able to see beyond the temporary to the eternal. And, and this is who I want us to be. Not a people that, that are caught in the herd of life following the trend of the day, following what seems popular or acceptable or temporary, but, but truly wise people that, that have poise and that have strength, 
And, and this is why we so need this. We so need the gathering of the saints. You know, truth and knowledge, all of these things, they, they seem easier in here. It's as if life kind of slows down in here. Uh, the things that the things that are so confusing out in the world in here, I think, can become clear. We get together, we sing truths, we center our lives on, on the Lord, and, and, and all of life begins to be clear. At least that's my experience. That's why I love the gathering of the saints. That's why I, I need this so bad in my life. Because all of the time, all day long, and, and you and I both, we live in this world of confusion. People are confused on how to treat each other. People are confused on identity. People are confused on a number of things. But the way that we will become this person, this, this wise person that, that can see above the herd, is by realizing this very simple truth that you know, Bob Dylan said one time, that man cannot save himself. That we need something from the outside to save us. We need external truth. We need an external Savior. And, of course, this is the message of the gospel, that God has intersected our lives. He has sent us an external Savior, someone from above all of this, Jesus himself, the very Son of God, to come and to identify with, with us, to save us and to show us what is true. And more than that, God has, has revealed to us truth. He's given us his word. He's, he's shown us his way. He's, to, you know, to quote Carl Henry, he's forfeited his own privacy so that we could know him, so that we could know the echoes of his heart. And this is why at Christ's covenant, we so love God's word. We so love what God has revealed to us. And we want to center ourselves on those things that God has revealed. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about four of these things that God has made true, that God has made real from the book of Proverbs. Now, Proverbs is, uh, is an incredible book uh, of the Bible, uh, a lot of truth, a lot of practical wisdom in the book. It, it very much has this, this kind of come here, son, sit down, let me tell you about life kind of feel about it. And in fact, if you, the verse we just read, if you look at the very next verse, verse 8, it kind of uses those words. Hear, my son, your father's instructions. Forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are like a graceful garland for your head. And pendants on your neck. And, and as we look at this, we're calling this series Manhood. Now, I'm going to go ahead and break it to you. Ladies, really these truths are for you too. Okay, They're for all of us. But these are things that we're maybe going to apply a little more particularly to men. Because I think some of the things we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks are particularly important for men. And they're particularly difficult for men to understand. And so, let's begin with our passage today. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And as we look at this passage, there's, there's kind of three factors in order to understand that we need to understand. The first is the relationship between God and knowledge. Secondly, the relationship between fear and the Lord. And then thirdly, the relationship between the foolish and the wise. The relationship between God and knowledge, that's kind of interesting. The relationship between the fear and the Lord and the relationship between the foolish and the wise. So let's begin up here. The relationship between God and knowledge. So one of the realities about the world that we live in is that the world wants to divide faith and reason or faith and knowledge. You can have your faith, you can have your worship, just keep that kind of over here. 
Don't bring it out into the marketplace. Don't, don't, don't mix the things that you believe, the, the, the faith part of your life, the religious or worshipful part of your life with the marketplace, with, with the knowledge part of the world. You can go to church, you can have a religion, just don't be overly devoted to it. Don't, don't believe anything that's, that's too wacky. In fact, this is coming up right now. There's a Supreme Court nominee named Brett Kavanaugh, and, and people are a little worried that he's too devoted to his Catholicism. It's, it's not that he's Catholics that's the problem. He's just very de- as a v- devoted Catholic. This came up recently with another judge, a circuit court judge that uh, was uh, being put up for question, Amy Barrett. And, and to respond, she says, well, hold on. Judges cannot, nor should they try to, align our legal system with the church's moral teaching whenever the two diverge. And you can see in that the, the kind of an acceptable secular tone. Let, let's keep your religion to yourself. In fact, even in the language that we've been kind of using or that we see as popular today, there's a freedom of worship rather than freedom of religion. Historically in America, we've talked about freedom of religion. Religion, an identifier of who you are. It's something that obviously goes with you to a worship service, but goes with you beyond a worship service. It's a rhythm of your life. It's, it's something that's true of your life. And, and if you'll just notice, just notice the language. That's kind of been replaced with we want to protect people's freedom of worship. Just the thing that they do privately, the thing that they do by themselves, the thing that they do that's outside of the main marketplace area. But here, the author of Proverbs is saying something very different. It says the beginning of knowledge is not the study of empirical data. The beginning of knowledge is not the scientific method. It says the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. In other words, the way that you understand the world, the way that you understand what is true and right, begins with how you relate to God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. John Calvin wrote this book, and if you took all the books written in the last 500 years that have shaped Western thought, this, is, this would be one in the top ten. I mean, it's, it's very much, probably most of us haven't read this book, but it, it shapes a lot of the way that we think. It's called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And he talks a lot in this book about knowledge, about how we know things, about how we understand the world and and how knowledge comes together to inform the way we live. And he says here, this is so interesting, he says basically the same thing Solomon's saying. Listen to this quote. He said, we must be persuaded that not a particle of light or wisdom or justice or power or rectitude or genuine truth will anywhere be found which does not flow from him, him being God. And of which he is not the cause. In this way we must learn to expect and ask all things from him. And thankfully ascribe to him whatever we receive. In in other words, you want to know anything? You want to know anything? Then you've got to know where it fits in God's design. And you've got to know where it fits in God's order. He alone has put everything in right relationship with everything else. And this is why the fear of the Lord begins with a knowledge of God. Knowledge, I mean, what is knowledge? You only know things by how they relate to everything else, right? So you only know that something is hot, for example, because you know what normal temperature feels like. You know what cold feels like. 
And therefore, in relation to those other things, you can understand that this is hot. You can know that something is hot. And how do you know what normal temperature is? It's because you look at data over time, and this is the way that the world is, this is the temperature world usually is. This is what is normal, and therefore these things are abstract. You can only know something is high or low in relationship to something else. You know, I, was, I have a buddy that's in Boston right now, and, and we were talking about the Boston Massacre. So you, you can only know that that happened on March 5th, 1770. We know that that's an event. I know that fact of empirical data because it, it fits on a timeline. I know that it happened in the past. I know that there's events that happened after that that were important for my life. So we have knowledge of anything by where it fits in comparison to everything else. You know, not to make this like Supreme Court Day at uh, Christ's Covenant, but I saw this quote and I thought it was, it was really good. It's, this is by Chief Justice John Roberts, and he was giving a college graduation commencement speech. And he says, I hope you will be treated unfairly so that you will come to know the value of justice. I hope that you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. I hope that you will be lonely from time to time so that you don't take friends for granted. I hope that you'll be ignored so that you'll know the importance of listening to others. And I hope you'll have just enough pain to learn comparison. Whenever I wish, or, or says, whether I wish these things or not, they're going to happen. And whether you benefit from them or not will depend on your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. And it's a great little quote, but what is he saying there? He's saying what I'm saying. It, it, all knowledge, everything we know, we know in relation to something else. But I want you to read this with me because this is important. If that's true, then if there is any truth, if there is any morality, if we can say, yes, something is true, something is right, if we can say that there's anything is right and wrong, then at the center of all of these things that we know, there must be an anchor that there must be something that holds the truth in place, or else we're just comparing things to things that don't matter. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. If you want to have any knowledge, there, there must be an anchor. The secular world says, don't bring God into knowledge, but Christianity says, no, you can't even have knowledge if you don't have God. You can't even have absolute if you don't have it. If there's no anchor, then we can't be sure of anything. Jesus and God alone are what make everything else stay in place. So that's our first point, the relationship between God and knowledge. But second thing I want to look at with you is the relationship between God and fear. Matt talked about this, the fear of the Lord. That's an interesting phrase. And, you know, we see it all throughout the Bible. It's one of the most common phrases in all of Scripture. But how do you understand it? The fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? Well, there's two kind of components of the fear of the Lord in, in, in Hebrew literature. One is the fear of reverence, and the other is uh, the fear of response or the fear of retribution. So the fear of reverence, you understand this, it's a sense of awe, it's, it's fear, it's seeing the beauty and the worth of God and, and shuddering in awe, seeing his beauty. It's as if we're responding to the beauty of God, the glory of God. In ancient Hebrew, the, the word that was most often used for glory is kavod, which means the weight, the weightiness of God, the kavod of God, the density of God. It's a, there's a weightiness that when you interact with of God, there's a fear, there's a right response of shuddering. Paige and I did, uh, we were over in Birmingham, and I did this wedding last night of this uh, great couple. And, uh, I, you know, one of the things I love about being a pastor is it's the, it's the moment before we're about to walk up 
and we're going to have the wedding, and it's just the groom and the groom's dad and me. You know, who gets to be a part of those moments? I mean, it's, it's just amazing. I mean, I love this. And so I'm sitting there, and here's this guy. He's about to get married. And here's his dad, and we're just talking. And all of a sudden, it got kind of quiet in the room. And this groom, he's a great guy. He said, oh, man, I'm starting to get a little nervous. Well, what was that? You know what it is? It's kavod, right? It's, he, he wasn't, like, thinking about backing out. This guy couldn't have been more thrilled to be marrying the girl that he was marrying. But it was just, oh, my gosh, the weight of the moment, the weight of this thing that he was about to do was just, it was just hitting him. There was a reverence about him. There was a sacredness about what he was about to do. And it was a beautiful and wonderful thing. So that's, the, that's this idea, the, the fear of reverence. But, but also in, in kind of the Hebrew world, there's a fear of retribution, a fear of justice. I don't want to cross this, whatever it is. I don't want to cross the Lord or whoever it is because I fear retribution. I, I don't want to receive justice from them. There is a power about that. So if, if the fear of reverence is an acknowledgement of the beauty of God, the fear of retribution is an acknowledgement of the power of God. Uh, I don't want to cross this law. I don't want to mess with this truth. And I, say, I always say that we have this kind of relationship with gravity, right? You don't want to mess with gravity, right? As much as you may want to jump off a building, as much as you may think it would be fun to jump off this really tall bridge, there's this law, right, that will take retribution on you called gravity if you do. And you may have this great desire. You may say, well, not today. You know, I really want to disobey gravity today. doesn't matter, right? It's going to take retribution. There, there's this great Bonhoeffer quote that says, The law of God takes fearful vengeance where it is distorted or abused. So again, gravity is a great example of that. You distort the law of gravity, it will take fearful vengeance upon you, no matter how much you may want to fly. But here's the deal. All of God's laws are like this. Now, the nice thing about the law of gravity is it takes its vengeance very quickly, right? You don't have to wait long to see, was this a good idea or not? You know, you know immediately. But there's other laws of God. If you break the law of caring for your body, let's say, of eating right, that law will eventually take vengeance on you. It may take years, but it will take its vengeance. If you break the law of honesty... It always comes back around. That, that law will take vengeance on you. If you, if you break the law of loving one another, being kind to your neighbor, that law will take vengeance. The, the law of the Lord will always eventually take vengeance on you where it is distorted or where it is abused. This is the fear of retribution. Now, what's interesting about this passage is I, went, I, I studied this. I looked at several commentators. Some say this is when it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, being of knowledge. Some say it's retribution. Some say it's reverence. There's, there's mixed scholarship, which whenever there's mixed scholarship on something, it usually means that Solomon probably had both ideas in mind. When we say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it, it, there's probably both ideas here. We, we, we find our knowledge in God because we see his beauty, but also because we fear his power. We, we see the weightiness and the glory of God but also we fear the consequences of disobeying the order that God has put in place. I want to obey God because I, I think that obeying him is right. And I want to obey God because disobeying him is costly. He is at the center of all things. He is the anchor of all things. He is the beginning of all things. 
As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And when you recognize both his beauty and his power, he becomes the anchor of your life. He becomes the identifier of your life. He becomes how you understand everything that is true in the universe. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But here's the question. And here's the question for us today. That is true. There is some anchor in your life. There is something that you're, there's some Lord in your life. But the question is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But here's the question. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord of your life? What is the anchor all of knowledge is anchored somewhere. And, and all of your knowledge and all of your understanding of the world is anchored in whatever it is that you fear most, whatever it is that you revere most. That is what you will believe. You know, people are always surprised by human action, all right? So people in the traditional cultures, people in the East, to look at us here in the West and they say, how could they be so immoral? How could they make, how could they be so wasteful? How could they make all of these decisions? And we, of course, over here in the West, look at people in the East, how could they be so traditional? How could they be so backwards? How could they treat women the way they do? And on and on and on. We, we end up looking at each other, but why do we do that? Why do we have such different value systems? It's because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you are anchored in something, they have a different understanding of the Lord, they have a different understanding of the anchor, and therefore a totally different understanding of knowledge. You know, people always say, well, how did this happen? How did, how did Nazi Germany happen, right? I mean, how did, how did these Germans, who were seemingly such reasonable people, how did they go off in all these crazy ideas? How did they distort the truth in such crazy ways? Well, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And they had this understanding of the Lord, their anchor as Nazi Germany, which, first of all, they were terrified of on one side. On the other side of, they revered the vision that Hitler was putting in front of them. He said, look, there's going to be a thousand years of peace. There's going to be a thousand years of glory for Germany. So let's go through this hard time and then We'll get these things. And they were anchoring their whole lives on this false reality. This is true. The fear of the Lord, whatever your Lord is, is the beginning of your worldview. It is the beginning of how you will understand everything in the world. Whatever you fear most, whatever you revere most, it will dictate how you understand the whole world. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But here's the question. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? I just want to say, for most people in Atlanta, the Lord is what I call the narrative, right? They've got the narrative that they're after. You know, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to achieve this, and I'm going to have, you know, marry a great guy, I'm going to marry a beautiful girl, I'm going to have these many children, they're going to be smart, they're going to be successful, and da 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 and everything's going to be great. And I'm going to retire someday, and we're going to have all this money. It's the narrative, right? And the city will kind of teach you Obey the narrative. It'll teach you to revere the narrative. This is what's going to make you happy. Follow the narrative. Stay on the path. And if you do this and get this, you'll be very, very happy. It will give you joy. And then it teaches you to revere, to, to be afraid of getting off the path, right? Don't believe anything too crazy. Don't jeopardize the narrative. Don't jeopardize, you know, this, this story that you're writing for yourself. And again, I just want to say it's certainly not wrong to plan for your life. It's certainly not wrong to have a vision for your life. But what is dictating that vision? Is that vision coming out of an intimacy with God? Is that vision for your life coming out of a desire to please the Lord and to use your life for his glory and for his mission? Or, or is it just the, the herd? 
that's saying, this is good. This is, just run with us. Are you really rising above the herd and, and really seeing the Lord or is something else dictating the narratives, dictating the center of your life? Knowledge is always anchored somewhere. You know, we, we uh, are reading this little book for our Thursday morning men's group, Jordan Peterson. It's uh, 12 Rules for Life and it's a secular book and it's you know, kind of good kind of classic self-help human psychology, but I, I can see the appeal of Peterson because he, he says a lot of things that are against the kind of popular grain of the day. But he, he, talks in, he talked in the chapter that we read this week about how do you know what you believe? Like, how do you really know the anchor, right? How do you know what's the anchor of your life, right? We're saying the fear of the Lord is beginning. What's the Lord? Well, of course, you know the answer to that question, right? You know, well, the Lord is Jesus, but, but Peterson says, how do you know that that's really the Lord? And, and he says this in the chapter, and I thought it was helpful. It says, you can only find out what you actually believe rather than what you think you believe by watching how you act. You simply don't know what you believe before that. You're too complex to understand yourself. How do you behave, right? You want to know what you believe? You want to know what's the Lord? Well, then how do you act? What are the rhythms of your life? Is there anything in your life that reflects that the beginning of knowledge is actually the Lord? Is what you believe really framed by the character and the essence of who God is? What do you believe? How do you act? That'll tell you everything you need to know about what you believe. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but who is the Lord? So we've looked at the idea of how does God and knowledge relate? We've looked at the idea of God and fear. But last, and importantly, I want to look at the, the relationship between the wise man and the fool. Fools despise wisdom and knowledge. You know, community group, we, we develop our material for that, and I, I wrote this appendix of this idea. It's all throughout the Proverbs, the fool, the way of the fool. And you can follow it throughout the book of Proverbs. There's a little appendix that will help you out with that if you're in one of our community groups. But the, the wise man, the truly wise man, is the one who listens to instruction. He hears instruction, he listens to it, he does something about it. The fool is the one who despises instruction. Right, Jesus talks about this, right? He talks about the, the man who builds his house on the sand, the man who builds his house on the rock. The, the wise man is the one who hears the words and puts them into practice. The fool is the one who hears the words. They both hear the words, but the fool doesn't listen. He builds his house on the sand, and of course the rains and the winds come, and the house is destroyed. The fool is the one who rejects instruction, who hears instruction and yet does nothing about it. And, and so I guess the take-home, and it's kind of a philosophical sermon today, but I guess the take-home is for you to just spend some time meditating on it. Where are you centering your life? What is your life centered on? Where are you building your house where are you building yourself? What is the center of your life? And the ancient Greek philosopher Protagoras famously said, man is the measure of all things. And I think that that's the way a lot of us think and act, really. We get into the herd. You know, we need our little religion here and there, but man is the measure of all things. But is this true? Is, are we building our house on the Lord? Is that the center of our knowledge is, is the narrative ruling your life? Is the narrative the Lord of your life? 
Is man the measure of your life? Or is the Lord the measure of your life? And again, most people in this room, you know, you know the answer to the question, but what is, what is truly the center of your life and how is that reflected in your life? Where are you anchored? Where are you anchored and are you being honest with yourself about what you're saying? You know, there's this famous atheist in the 20th century named Aldous Huxley. It's kind of the Christopher Hitchens of the 20th century. And uh, one day he was talking about his atheism and he said, you know, for myself, as no doubt for many of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness or atheism was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. He was saying I was motivated to be an atheist. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system, I guess Christianity, claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning that they insisted of the world. But there was an admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would simply deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. <laughs> Basically saying, my, my life didn't line up with what I was supposedly believing in Christianity. And I chose my actions over my, my worldview system. And I would just ask you, you know, it may not be with sexual revolution or whatever, but are you doing the same thing? Is your life, if you say, man, Jesus, God is the anchor of my life. I believe he's the center of knowledge. I believe this verse. Is there anything in your life that would display that? Is there, is there anything in your life that would prove that? Are you being the fool? Are you living out the life of the fool? And, and I want to say as we close, here's the truth of the matter. Is that we all to some degree are. You know, I have built my life on false things. I have built my life on dreams, on the narrative. I have forsaken the rhythm of the Lord. I have believed things because they made me feel good. I have rejected God's truth. And, and the, the wonder of the gospel is that's exactly the kind of place where Jesus meets us. The wonder of the gospel is that, that Jesus came to be like us in that. You know, one of the most amazing Bible verses for me is Luke 2.52. It says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You're like, how did that happen, right? This is Jesus. This is the Son of God. And yet he, he humbled himself so much to become like us in such a way that he would actually grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In other words, Jesus so humbled himself that he, as a man, had to learn perfectly obediently to center his life on God, to center his life on the will of his Father. And that's exactly what he did. Amazingly, that's how he lived. He, he did center his life on the will of the Father. He did center his life on the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And all of his knowledge and all of his life was, was centered on those things. Even though he was tempted in every way, you know, even though he was offered the narrative, he was offered to center his life on the things of man. I mean, think about the temptation of Christ. Satan came to him and said, look, here, all the kingdoms of the world, they could be yours. But he centered his life, he never disobeyed. He never stepped outside. He, he centered his life on the fear of the Lord and, and, that's, and that's life. His life was always consistent with God's design. That's why John says of Jesus, in him was life. This, this is life. Now the truth of us is we're more like Proverbs 14, 12. It says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death, right? We're more like, 
Protagoras, right? Man is the measure of all things. I'm going to follow the way that seems right to a man. And as the text says, that always leads to death. Again, the, the law of God, the order of God always takes fearful vengeance when it is distorted. But the amazing thing about the gospel is this, that Jesus, whose, whose life was life, his life was always in line with the order of God. Jesus, whose life was life, who deserved only life, was willing to exchange places with people like us whose ways are leading to death. He was willing to become our death and die in our place so that through him and in him we could be realigned. Ultimately, this is what it, what it means to build your life on the knowledge of God. This is what it means to, to build your life on God as the anchor. To, it all starts with relationship in Christ. Knowing Christ, anchoring your life on him, finding him, finding his truth and, and letting him restore you and letting him teach you the, the truth of all things. And, and so I, I just invite you today, have you anchored your life? Where are you building your life? Have you anchored your life on Jesus? Have you centered your life on Christ? Is there a knowledge of him? Is there a knowledge of his truth and his word in your heart? It begins with relationship with him. You know, when the, uh, Jesus was teaching disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says when he began to speak to them, their hearts burned within them. Their hearts were burning within them. And, and I would just think, I mean, there may be some of you right now, that your hearts are burning within you. There was some conviction. There was some truth that struck you. And, and I just want to encourage you now to, to, to obey that. That's the voice of the Lord when you hear his voice, your heart begins to burn. Obey him. Listen to him. Center your life on him. Build relationship with him. Life is in him. Let's pray together. Father, I, I, uh, I pray that we would listen, that we would listen to your truth, that we would listen to, um, to this warning that in Jesus is life, and his life was the light of men. Father, I pray that this light would, would come on in our hearts today, that we would really believe that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord, that we would fear and love and treasure Jesus above everything else, that we would see that he has a kavod about him, a weightiness, that we would see the, the beauty of his reverence, Lord, that we would fear the power of his retribution. And so, Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit now, as we respond, that you would just do your work in this place. May we hear your voice now. May we respond in obedience. May we center and build our, our lives on what is real and not fleeting, on what is actually good and not just popular, on what is true and not just acceptable. And I pray all this in the good and strong name of Jesus, our Lord.